you're going to want to check out bestofleft.com slash holiday, where we have a bunch of options for holiday shopping that help support the show. There you will find links to the best place to buy books, audiobooks, or gift certificates for either, as well as various apparel and merch, not just our stuff, and of course, gift memberships for the show. Again, find all that at bestofleft.com slash holiday, and we appreciate your support. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the labor dispute within our freight rail industry, as well as other unionization efforts that corporations are vehemently opposing, while the Democrats and Biden, the most pro-labor president ever, are doing precious little to help. Clips today are from Bad Faith, The Brian Lehrer Show, Citations Needed, Counterspin, Economic Update, and The Real News, with an additional members-only clip also from The Real News. And stay tuned to the end, where I'll explain the particularly fitting origin of the modern definition of the term hot mess, which I used in the title of today's show, because it was so fitting. come to you, Justin, because you wrote a great essay in the New York Times back in October, in which you traced some of the history as to how the railroads got to be so broken in the first place. Can you walk us through a little bit of how we got to the place where we've had these really dramatic cuts in the the labor force and some of the systemic changes in terms of how rail and freight are delivered that caused there to be so much pressure on the individual employees and so much inflexibility in their timelines? Oh, yeah. So this is sort of a, a culmination of a long historical process here, which I think really kicked off in the 1960s. You had after the failure of the largest corporation in America, the Penn Central Railroad, you know, you had to the government had to take all of the Northeast railroads into government ownership just in order for you know, the entire nation to survive. They didn't want to do it, but they had to. That created a railroad called Conrail, and Conrail survived largely through cutting tracks, cutting crews, cutting locomotives and rolling stock, getting, it was austerity all the way down. You know, it was a, it was a nationalized railroad. You'd think that would be something where you would have more investment, but no, it was, it was all austerity. And this sort of management philosophy propagated one of the things is through something we call precision scheduled railroading, which in theory is a very good idea. You know, it's good to run trains on schedules, but in practice, it has largely been more and more and more and more and more cost cutting. This has been a, a long process of disinvestment, austerity. You've really seen in the last couple years where the trains have gotten longer they're going longer distances. There's more delays. Crews are being called at weird hours to go to weird places to take trains to other weird places. It got really bad really quick, but it is a natural continuation of what a private railroad has to be, which is a, you know, if, if you have a private railroad, it's a money making business. And as bad as the railroads are at providing for workers or moving things or anything that they're supposed to do, they are very good at making money right now. To that point, over at the lever, they did a great write up a little while ago about what was it, $200 billion of profit over the last 10 years or so? That's what's been sent into dividends and stock buybacks, I want to oh, say. stock buybacks, that's right. That's you, right. Uh, you know, if you, you're like, we need a high-speed rail network in America, that's about the amount of money you would want to make that happen. That's a good parallel here. Do we have a sense of what the cost would be to these railroad companies? I mean, we, we have a sense of their profit, right? This is from The Lever, Matthew Cunningham Cook. Railroad CEOs were paid over $200 million as workers suffered. Warren Buffett alone, railroad giant, obviously, his net worth jumped 50% during the pandemic to $100 billion. And the companies themselves have said that their record profits aren't attributable to the workers. And that's why workers aren't being paid more. They said, quote, the companies maintain that capital investment and risk are the reasons for their profits, not any contribution by labor. Are you kind of doing a mental comparison? Or are there conversations about the cost of actually satisfying these pretty modest requests for any time off whatsoever against the massive profits that are being, I won't even say earned, but appropriated by management? I'm not one to run numbers, but I do look at the impact on the lives of myself and my coworkers. And 
we've seen deaths under PSR increase. We've seen derailments in- increase. Mm. We've seen unsafe conditions. Rolling stock and track is going under inspected or less inspected than it used to be because of cuts to the labor force. And, and we see the effect of not having paid sick time with, you know, just here in Iowa, we had, yes, it was maybe Galesburg, Illinois. On the BNSF, we had a, a worker who died of a heart attack and mm. he, he knew he had problems, but was unable to get the time off he needed to address them. And so those to me outweigh any cost to railroads that are already making billions. It's not that they're not making money. They're making extreme amounts of money. And there is never enough. Railroads are turning away business, not because it doesn't make money, but because it doesn't make enough margin for them. This is part of the PSR, right? The idea that you're doing kind of longer trains, sometimes three mile long trains. It's kind of incredible to wrap your mind around that instead of stopping and changing out cargo at various stops throughout the country are basically doing end to end runs, which technically, abstractly, in theory, would enable you to have more of a regular schedule and have people to be able to anticipate and sched- and like coordinate around deliveries. But in fact, has basically me- meant that people who need to be supplied in between like different kinds of goods are now prioritized and people who use the other kind of goods that are no longer profitable, perishables and things like that are no longer so easily serviced by those train companies and have to rely on on trucks. And so there's winners and losers. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, that's right. And precision schedule railroading is a bit of a misnomer because the scheduling part is really on the railroad schedule. That's what that means. And and the precision is about, it's not about really accommodating workforce or staffing. The precision part of it is how precisely can we cut the operation of the bone to where it functions? And unfortunately, they've cut so deep that when there's one breakdown, it just has a cascading effect and it impacts, has impacts throughout the entire system that, that cause the freight rail system to not operate the way it should. And it's it's all rooted in inadequate staffing. And and you have a three-mile train with, at this point, only two people staffing it. When there's a breakdown, the individuals on, on board have to walk miles, potentially, to even resolve the problem. And there's a push now for there to be even leaner staffing with either just one human and a kind of autopilot Tesla type of driving system without the kind of redundancy that we kind of understand in in plane travel and other kind of high risk travel is useful for in case someone does, for example, have a heart attack like your your colleague did? Yeah, it's not going to be enough to have the cuts uh, to the workforce where they are and accommodate them with this contract. However, that that happens, they're going to keep pushing to eliminate people from these jobs. And the, the end goal is to eventually completely automate the rail network. Gwen, you have been out there on the ground um, at a lot of the kind of burgeoning organizing here in the city. You were on the ground in Staten Island this spring when Amazon workers voted to unionize at the JFK 8 warehouse. Um, Talk about why that was such a big deal. Yeah, that was such an interesting campaign to follow. I had been talking to workers for months, just like I believe you were also um, talking to folks, Jane, but um, trying to understand like what was going to happen here. And I think what was so interesting about that is speaking to kind of experts at more established unions, um, labor experts in New York City, they had no idea what was going to happen either on the eve of that vote. Um, You know, this was, to remind our listeners, um, a campaign that was not affiliated with any established national union at that time. Um, This was a group of current and former uh, Amazon workers, some laid off employees, you know, the president who has now become sort of an infamous labor celebrity na- nationwide, Chris <laughs> Smalls, um, was fired in 2020 after he organized a walkout where workers were raising concerns about COVID protocol and COVID safety. And that was in sort of the height of COVID in New York City when um, the hospitals were overrun and New Yorkers were dying every day. And yet, Amazon workers had to, were working, you know, crazy hours and doing more deliveries than ever because all the, you know, white collar workers who were staying home were ordering everything Everything on Amazon. (laughs) Right. So I think sort of that, you know, that idea of the essential worker that emerged in 2020 
um, is, you know, a lot of people will talk about the origin story of organizing that we're seeing last year and this year mm. um, that sort of grew out of very, you know, um, discontent with working conditions and feeling like you had no power in the workplace to change them. Since that union vote on Staten Island for Amazon, they've had a couple other Amazon attempts to organize or attempts to organize am- Amazon workers that haven't gone so well. Um, can you tell me about the latest fights and what happened? Sure. Yeah. Since that successful vote, which the, the votes were counted in early April, um, there was a subsequent vote at a warehouse literally across the street from JFK 8. And they, those workers did not vote to unionize. And we also saw in the past week, uh, week and a half, um, voters in Albany um also vote to not join the Amazon labor union. There had been a campaign there as well. And, you know, there's been a lot of questions about what happened. Amazon really, I think, was sort of taken aback by this victory at JFK and by all accounts has sort of ramped up the tactics used to try to crack down on that organizing. Um, the union has filed two dozen grievance or two dozen uh, allegations of uh, violations of labor law leading up to this uh, election in Albany um, before the National Labor Relations Board, um, you know, alleging that basically, you know, union organizers were surveilled, they were fired, they were targeted for discipline, um, all of which, you know, undermined the ability for workers to sort of form, to to build a successful Mm -hmm. campaign in those two locations. And I have been, you know, there are, um, it seems like the ALU may choose to appeal that latest um, loss. Um, It hasn't been filed yet, but I've been talking to attorneys there um, who may, you know, try to challenge what happened there, saying that this was not a free and fair union election. Um, Yeah. Jane, even though, you know, we we kind of look at the success of the Amazon workers on Staten Island, um, you started to talk about this before, but you know, voting to unionize is step one. Negotiating a contract is the next big step. Is that right? Yes, and absolutely. That, and, and and how huge of an obstacle is that? It's it's just as big as the unionization itself. And, you know, I, I should back up by saying what's funny about this show is I'm the daughter of a, a very successful New York politician. So I grew up cutting my teeth on like I literally grew up with charts and maps and diagrams and turnout <laughs> machines and trade unions running all over the house when I was a little girl. Um, so I think that I I came very early to the conclusions that Caban was talking about last week on your show about how she got sat down and taught she got taught about the science and the math of winning. Right. Mm. I feel like I basically grew up knowing the science and math of winning because my father was a. Uh, you know, pushed into the left side of the Democratic Party in the years that he was holding office. And I, I, I have said to people my entire adult life, you know, I've, I've run straight up local campaigns, ballot initiatives, but most of my life has been running what we call unionization elections and then continuing on with the workers through their first collective agreement or first contract. In this country, the deck is so stacked to Gwen's point. The deck is so stacked against workers. I say to people, if you can, if you can help workers learn to win a union election, you can easily go straight into political campaigns because <laughs> it's so much easier, honestly, than winning a union election. And, but what's, what's great about the process is the clarity about the point of governing power. Because it, we go immediately on like a, it, not, not on Amazon and JFK 8, right? Amazon has been contesting the election the whole time. They have not been given what's called union recognition yet. Amazon is, cont- the company is contesting uh, the JFK 8 election. We hope that there'll be an order from the National Labor Relations Board to force Amazon to start bargaining. But by the way, I don't have any faith that Amazon will abide by anything the National Labor Relations Board tells them to do because Starbucks is literally ignoring orders by the National Labor Relations Board. This is the problem with the grotesque imbalance of corporate power in this country. They are just they just don't care about the law. They don't mm-hmm. care what regulators tell them. They just don't care. So I want to return to one key point that does play out in first contract negotiations and probably almost every single one in my life, which is we strike because that's a very powerful weapon in a capitalist system. There is one thing big business leaders need workers to do and one thing only, and that is show up and keep the profits being made. And so the alternative to that is a 90 or 95% walkout where actually the profit margin is immediately starting to be dented and 
sidebar, we don't have time for all of it today, but you know, the US Supreme Court is now taking a case in, you know, early in October, the second day of the court opening session this year, they're now taking on a case, uh, Glacier Northwest to start making it so that, uh, employers can attempt to charge unions for the cost of strikes, which is wow. just a reflection of why, of how off the rails corporate power is. And that I'm going to argue, as I have my whole life, elections matter very deeply, strikes matter equally deeply. And part of the beauty of building a strike ready union is it means that you have constantly got your rank and file member in uh, the con- in the position to be politically educated about who's on their side. And if you have a high mobilization structure, you roll it straight into the ballot box. And Gerard from Unite Here and Mike from CWA are examples of two <laughs> unions that do just that. There are not enough of them across this country, but those are great examples of unions that understand and operationalize every example I just gave you. You've got to keep strikes active. It keeps the members active. It keeps the organization strong. It's a former political education and then they roll into the ballot box informed and in high numbers and they go door knocking in swing states. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, who know that gifting is hard, but they make it easy with socks, underwear, and t-shirts that feel good and do good. They feel good because they're thoughtfully designed with the softest materials, and they do good because for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone in need. Bombas really are great gifts because they focus on the basics that everybody needs, like socks, underwear, t-shirts, and now slippers. And they really stick the landing with exceptionally soft and comfortable materials materials combined with high-tech design features. You're going to want to check out their holiday collection in particular that puts a modern twist on traditional festive colors and designs. Think rich purples and greens, geometric snowflake designs, sweater-inspired textures, and retro ski patterns. Meanwhile, socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested items at homeless shelters, which is precisely why that's Bomba's focus with their buy one, gift one model. And so far, Bombas customers like you have helped donate over 75 million items of essential clothing through a network of 3,500 on-the-ground organizations serving their communities. Give the good this holiday season with Bombas. Go to bombas.com best and use the code best for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot best. Code best for 20% off. Bombas.com best. It's particularly interesting because, you know, media has a very short memory. And the Biden administration took a victory lap after they pushed through this tentative agreement and got both sides to agree to send it back to their membership. Um, This was this huge win to avert the strike, the potential of a shutdown back in September. So we're seeing a lot of the same language in its framing. And of course, just like last time, as Max and I both commented on, on the various interviews that we did with a lot of folks who suddenly cared. It's about the sort of economic issues at play here. You know, billions of dollars will be lost. The economy will be crippled. It's also a Christmas story. It's a Christmas story. Right. Just ahead of Christmas, this is, you know, you're going to lose out on fuel and grain's going to rot in the silos and all of these things, right? It's completely devoid of the humanity behind the supply chain that keeps the supply chain running is completely devoid of any sort of human element about what the workforce is going through. And if it's even mentioned at all, it takes to the bottom of most of these articles to draw attention to the issues at play and the reasons why we got to this place in the first place. And it's all this deliberate framing that completely removes the human element creates this space where the Biden administration is coming in, sliding in at the last minute to, you know, take yet another victory lap saying, you know, we are doing this because the economy is going to be fucked. And look at us, we're saving the day. And it sucks because I sent Adam this sort of master cut of CNN coverage today. You want to listen to that real quick and respond to it? Yeah, I would love to. Just a warning to listeners, you're going to get very mad. (laughs) Yes, this was actually put together and tweeted out by Steve Morris, senior political reporter at The Recount. Uh, Let's hear this nightmare now. 
A rail strike is one of the most disruptive and expensive things that can happen to an economy. A rail shutdown or strike would disrupt supply chains. A strike means food prices could skyrocket. Many experts are saying would be an economic catastrophe. That could mean a big shortage and massive price hikes. Even gas prices could increase. And it also could cost the economy a billion dollars within the first week. That would cripple the economy. I'm not setting aside the concerns of your members, but are you and your members willing to stop the rail? in effect, uh, and, and accept those costs to the U.S. economy. Do you believe a strike is worth it if it cripples the U.S. economy and costs up to $2 billion a day? More than $2 billion per day. Is it worth it? And on top of all of that, the holidays are right around the corner. So a little less than a month right before Christmas here. Especially right before the holidays. President Biden warning, if that happened... It would devastate the economy if we had a strike like that. So joining me now to talk about this and a lot more is Bank of America. It's Brian Moynihan, chairman and CEO, one of the biggest banks in the world. So, yeah, so here you have... The best part is throwing it to the Bank of America CEO. Yeah, yeah. So this is like the National Lampoon cover from 1973 where they have the guns of the dog's head saying, but if you don't buy this magazine, we're going to kill this dog, right? Like, why do the greedy rail workers want little Jimmy to not have Christmas gifts this president while he's in St. Jude's Hospital on life support. That's right. right. Jimmy needs his Hess truck and BB gun. The framing is infuriating, right? You, I believe that's the BLET president, I think, is the person that they're interviewing there who's been sort of a, a public face of these negotiations. Why would you cripple the economy? Personally. Right. It's like, <laughs> uh, is a strike worth it if you're going to bring the economy to its knees? And it's like, well, first off, that is exactly the reason why you would withhold your labor because it is the only weapon you have against literally the only weapon against a juggernaut like other than armed rebellion it's the only weapon you have right against what is essentially a council of monopolies these billionaires have all decided on their side that they are going to work together to essentially keep hold of their own turf and make sure that no one else can edge in it's not like people are building or buying more rail you know what i mean they have control of this and this workforce is consistently being run into the ground have been for years. Record numbers of people are quitting because they just can't do it anymore. And it's the choice between getting cancer treatment or watching their children grow up or spending the rest of their lives or dying on the rails. Uh, They just don't want to make that choice anymore. This is the important piece here. And of course, the media, corporate media, spends its time villainizing workers who are very rightly in my DMs, in Max's DMs, in everyone else who has been talking to the rank and file in the last couple of days, feeling very betrayed by the Biden administration. And the sort of propaganda wing that is corporate media in this country are eating this shit up and just throwing it back in the worker's face constantly. It's very deliberate. Right. And of course, it's never incumbent upon the railroad management and billionaire owners, billionaire companies to be the ones to concede. Because the main sticking point here, one of the main sticking points, I know there are others, but the primary one that keeps coming up is this idea of paid sick leave, which sounds, because they don't have any, they have zero paid sick leave. And it sounds extremely reasonable to to the average person. And the railroad companies are stubbornly sticking to their guns of saying zero paid sick leave. And again, the framing is almost never, with very rare exception, but almost never, why are these greedy corporations not just conceding on paid sick leave? Why would they destroy the economy because they want to prevent people from having paid sick leave? It's never that framing. It's why are the people seeking paid sick leave want to torpedo the economy by withholding their labor until they get the thing that they want? Mm-hmm. And um, that is, of course, never, ever how it's framed. It is always incumbent upon the striker to concede to their own lack of dignity and basic demands. Right. The robber barons are not seen as holding the economy hostage. No, right. never. So, all right, I'm going to hop in here because I have a lot of thoughts. I'm very angry and I'm going to try to focus this and hit all these points. So the thing I want to say up front, right, is that covering this story, right, covering the crisis on the railroads, as Mel and I have done at The Real News over the past year, has been a truly gross object lesson in the role that corporate media play in laundering corporate malfeasance and, in fact, helping to facilitate 
ongoing corporate plunder as the clip that we just played is that's like a perfect example of it. But I do want to just note one more kind of preamble here, like Mel was saying, because this undergirds everything. Because what are we talking about here? Like the coverage that Mel and I have been doing all year is primarily long, extended interviews with workers trying to kind of like build the narrative about this crisis from the grassroots up from the voices of the people who are actually making the railroads run. That's not a very sexy thing to do. It's been ignored by most other media outlets. And then when people started taking an interest in it, a lot of those mainstream media outlets started basically piggybacking off of our reporting, finding content contacts through our reporting, taking arguments through our reporting and never citing us at all. Right. But what we hope we have offered people is a living archive of the voices of the folks who are being run into the ground by corporate greed on the freight railroad system. We are talking about a beleaguered workforce that has been slashed dramatically over the past 40 years. The railroads used to have over 500,000 workers working on them in 1980 and over the past four decades. They have slashed and burned and gutted that workforce down to around 130. And now the railroads are complaining that about like a labor shortage and they can't hire enough people. Motherfucker, the rail carriers, the seven main rail carriers have collectively laid off or furloughed or eliminated over 30% of their collective workforce since 2015 alone. This wasn't COVID. Yeah. This is a deliberate corporate policy that railroaders call the cult of the operating ratio. This is what happens when you financialize an essential infrastructural system like the railroads and turn it into just a sort of money making scheme and that's what they people like warren buffett have done in spades right they have cut the workforce they piled more work onto fewer workers they've made the trains longer and more dangerous and more unwieldy with fewer people operating them which puts all of us at risk you see stories of derailments with toxic chemicals leaking out of these trains these stories are happening all around you It was just confirmed today that Hakeem Jeffries is the next House Minority Leader. There was jockeying, apparently, or some presumption that there would be jockeying for Pramila Jayapal to be in that role. And we've seen repeatedly stories that characterize her as shepherding the interests of the left, even though she seems consistently to stop just short of actually doing anything that manifests any material benefit for everybody. And this latest case where there was all of this applause for her having gotten this amendment, including all of this sick leave stuff, passed along with the mailing resolution in the House. Your point about it being political theater, do you have any confidence that this is a moment that increasingly we're being confronted with moments where the public at large better understands whether they're leftists that are disillusioned or Republicans that are disillusioned or liberals that are disillusioned, that this is one big club and none of us are in it? I think so. I would say, you know, just giving my honest kind of gut reaction to that. Like I said, my job is to interview workers about their lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles. And this comes up a lot. I mean, like more and more people are convinced that there is no real political divide, that when it comes to, you know, the lives and dignity of working people and maintaining the sort of system of corporate pillage that is concentrated decision-making power and wealth in the hands of a few, that no one's really going to do anything to stop that. But as I think I mentioned earlier, there are real tangible things that Democrats can do here, and they really need to do something because they keep racking up a terrible reputation for working people who don't forget all the times that they've been betrayed by them. Again, apologies if I'm uh, repeating myself, but I still have people saying, we remember when Obama promised or campaigned in 2008 promising to uh, push through the Employee Free Choice Act. Um, and then he dropped it like a bad habit as soon as union workers helped get him elected. We remember when Obama and the White House did absolutely nothing when Scott Walker was taking a battering ram to public sector workers and ramming through Act 10 and then turning Wisconsin into a right to work state a couple of years later. Democrats just sat by and watched that happen. They have also not made the PRO Act a priority. It went through the House and has just sat, sat and died in the Senate. It has not been a priority for Democrats. Democrats, even though, as every 
person I've talked to is, as repeated, like it would absolutely revolutionize labor relations in this country, mm. that labor relations are so stacked in favor of the bosses, labor law so stacked in favor of the bosses. We can't go into all the reasons why, but you mentioned one, like when we look at labor's heyday in the 1930s and early 40s, right? When we look at all labor was able to accomplish under under you know like very intense circumstances a big part of that was when you saw entire cities essentially go on general strikes mm-hmm. because like textile workers were going on strike and then you had like you know mill workers saying you know what we're going on strike too and the bosses were shitting their pants as were the people in DC and so what did they do they ran through Taft Hartley as soon as they had the votes for it in the 1940s that essentially made that kind of action illegal and that is why we can't do you know legally by the proper channels, the sort of sympathy strikes that that we saw in that time period. Now, the the PRO Act, I don't believe it would counteract that, but it would open up a lot of doors that were closed with Taft-Hartley over half a century ago. But again, that has not been a priority. I already mentioned that the NLRB, you know, in many ways, the beating institutional heart for supporting the labor movement is on life support right now to the point that they may actually have to start laying off people because they can't keep up. Their budget hasn't been raised. Mm. People in labor all look at this. They're like, Okay, you say you're pro-labor, you say you're the most pro-labor, pro-union administration in, in, you know, a generation. Yeah, there are some arguments to be made. Like there were like job creating measures that Biden ran through with the COVID relief package, with the CHIPS Act. Like those do mean jobs and union jobs in certain parts of the country. But when it comes to supporting workers' ability to fight for what they need, when it comes to actually empowering workers, That is where the Democrats keep failing people. That is where they are showing that they are not actually serious because you end up in situations like these where workers actually have to are forcing you to make politically unpopular decision. It would be politically unpopular to say, I'm not going to get involved in this. These workers deserve what they're fighting for. And the rail carriers need to get serious. at the bargaining. Would it, Max, be politically unpopular? Because it feels like that's actually in this moment, the politically popular to say, even if it's like not politically expedient in terms of campaign dollars and your interests to your corporate donor base. That's what's so incredible. I was watching a segment on Fox the other day where one of the hosts, she was interviewing a a worker and it was incredibly sympathetic. I mean, there was no bickering about the deservedness of sick days or the deservedness of pay or anything like that. And I think it's partly because the requests are just so (laughs) reasonable and basic and it's an industry that people have a lot of respect for. And so whatever pivot you could try to do a quick pivot and and turn rail workers into baristas, but it's going to take more than this media cycle for them to accomplish that. So there's no one really against it. Like, I mean, even the people in Congress, Nancy Pelosi, when she says, "Oh well, I guess we gotta we gotta force their hand," she first gives lip service to the value of the worker and how unconscionable it is that they're working in these conditions, but then says, "I guess we just gotta do it. We just gotta do it till the Christmas gifts arrive on time." The fact that they have to cloak it. And as their hand is being forced, really demonstrates that public opinion is so solidly with the workers in a way that, frankly, I can't think of a parallel that I've witnessed. Even as we've been seeing the Starbucks worker and the enthusiasm for the teacher strike some years ago and all of those things, this feels different. It is interesting that if you are a big, burly, manly man railroader or you are a woke, blue haired Starbucks barista, (laughs) you have basically the same complaint, which is about scheduling. It was funny, one of the tags, I think the last time you were on, Ross, the episode was titled something that was like a joke about pumpkin spice lattes for exactly that reason. It came up on the show. And I don't know, it frustrates me. In some ways, it's like very optimistic to feel the energy being so supportive in a bipartisan way. And another way, it's very demoralizing because even in this context, I can very well see the, the path toward everybody getting away with this and Congress voting for this resolution and nobody blinking an eye, because partly because of the coverage reasons that you were talking about before, Max, and partly because even though the coverage, some of the coverage, including on Fox, is sympathetic, it doesn't contemplate the possibility of what could be done. No one out loud on mainstream media says sympathy strike, general strike, wildcat strike. No one on like a mainstream network will call for or let the audience know this is where you can give money to help support a strike fund or what have you. Like that is not the posture of the average American. And we're so far away from having a more densely unionized population for people to actually know how all of this works that I think people are just living in this world where 
they know something's wrong, but they actually don't even really understand what the path to improvement would necessarily even look like. Yeah, I think that's right. And two things I would say on that. The answer to this question in many ways depends on the stakes of taking the positions that we're talking about. Like I said, Marco Rubio is in a a cushy position right now because at this point, it doesn't really matter what his vote is. So he can kind of like, you know, say what he wants, get like, you know, some fawning media coverage. But when it actually comes time to like put up or shut up or lead some sort of charge that may, you know, lose him popularity in his own district or within his own party, but actually requires him to stand up firmly for working people and to actually back that with legislation, not just nice words, then we'll see how committed he really is to this type of, you know, support for workers. So I don't know. I could always be surprised. I think that you're right. I think that the door's wide open for people on both sides of the political aisle. If they were smart, they would look at the fact that unions are more popular now than they've been in any of our lifetimes. Right. So like, if you want to try to build popular support, there you go. Like there's a great slam dunk, like sympathize with workers, stand up for workers. The public does as well. This holiday season, the easiest way to get all of your gifting done while supporting Best of Left is to just remember one URL, bestofleft.com slash holiday. From there, we link to our two favorite ways to buy books, both physical and audio, as well as our merch store, where you can get our designs, of course, along with the great works from thousands of other artists at the same time. And we get a commission on everything you buy. Not to mention, of course, we also have Best of the Left gift memberships for the real intellectuals on your list. For books, both Bookshop and Libro are the best way to go because their whole business model is set up to help support local brick-and-mortar bookshops, not attempt to run them out of business. And both offer great gifting options. For instance, Libro offers audiobook credit bundles, which is great for gifts, and here's why. When you buy audiobook credit bundles, they are at a discounted price, and when your recipient redeems them, they don't have to worry about the price at all. Nearly all of Libro's books are available for the cost of one credit, regardless of what their normal dollar value is. So you get to give more for less, and your giftee doesn't have to think about money at all and can simply pick which books they want and pay one credit per title. And for our merch store, obviously, Best of Left Gear is great, but it may not be right for everyone on your list. Seriously, feel free to explore the entirety of the store because it is full of amazing designs that you can put on tees and other items. And finally, Best of Left gift memberships, I think, are probably fairly self-explanatory. It's a great way to directly support the show and help spread the joy of Best of Left to those on your list. So again, that one URL is bestofleft.com slash holiday. There's also a link in the show notes and a big banner on our homepage so you can't miss it. Bestofleft.com slash holiday. Listeners probably know that organizing has been happening, but we hear maybe less about the lengths or depths, we might say, that super powerful, successful company owners are going to, to resist uh, workers getting together to represent themselves. Well, meanwhile, we do see publicity for those companies all day and all night, you know, in ads and social media promotions and supposedly earned news by outlets that present a secret menu or a hidden deal as a news event. So maybe let's start with your recent piece for Jacobin on this. Starbucks and Amazon have been violating actual law, according to the National Labor Relations Board, in their fight against workplace organizing. Yes, it's not just distasteful. They're actually violating the law. Right. You know, an important thing to say straight off is the law itself is very weak. So there is so much that Starbucks and Amazon can do to fight unions that is legal under the National Labor Relations Act. All sorts of things would not be legal in other advanced democracies, but, you know, are legal in the U.S. But 
they're not just doing that. They're doing things and doing them again and again that are clearly unlawful. And, you know, in the case of Starbucks, the National Labor Relations Board currently has over 350 open unfair labor practice charges against Starbucks. And, you know, that's a truly a stunning number within a relatively short period of time. We're talking about a campaign that really only started in August of last year in Buffalo in upstate New York, and for the first few months, really until December, January, was only in Buffalo, and then subsequently spread nationwide. The only comparable thing that I can think of is the UAW dispute with Caterpillar in Mm -hmm. the the 1990s, where eventually there were over 400 unfair labor practice charges, allegations against Caterpillar. But that campaign took place over a seven or eight year period. So Starbucks, you know, is really just operating as if the law does not apply to it. What happens is that, you know, Starbucks violates the law. In Buffalo alone, the regional director in Buffalo issued a complaint against Starbucks in May saying that Starbucks had committed almost 300 individual violations of federal labor law in Buffalo alone in a three-month period leading up to the first elections in December. The company is alleged to have fired over 100 pro-union baristas. It has closed union stores in Buffalo, in Ithaca, New York, in Seattle, in Portland, and unionizing stores and other places. But this is a remarkable union campaign that's now spread to over 240 Starbucks stores around the country have voted to unionize. But there's no question if it were not for this rampant, unlawful union busting practices, it would be 2,000 or 3,000. It would be far, far more stores. The one thing that Starbucks did that had the greatest impact is in April, it announced that it was going to increase wages and benefits, but only for non-union stores. If you had voted to unionize or if you were engaged in organizing, you would not be getting these new benefits and wages. And Finally, it implemented these in August. Later in August, the NLRB said this was unlawful. This was clearly designed to create a chilling atmosphere and to discourage workers from becoming involved in the nationwide organizing campaign. What did Starbucks do? It said, we think that is wrong. We're going to fight it. And then in September, it announced yet another wave of increased benefits that apply only to non-union workers. And, you know, with Amazon, Amazon is still contesting the result of the historic victory of the Amazon Labor Union in Staten Island on April 1st. Amazon is still not accepting that result. The NLRB recommended that Amazon's election objections be dismissed in their entirety. I mean, they were the most frivolous objections, Mm -hmm. many of them. They were all thoroughly investigated. They were all dismissed. Amazon has said, we don't accept that. It now goes to the regional director. Regional director will undoubtedly agree with the hearing officer. Amazon will then appeal it to the full board in Washington, D.C. because it's objections and not a complaint. They can't appeal to the federal courts immediately, but they can simply refuse to bargain on the basis of they don't accept the election result. Then the union has to make a complaint. The NLRB would come out with a bargaining order. Amazon can say we're still not bargaining because we don't accept the election was fair. And so the board would have to go to the courts to enforce the bargaining order. All of this will take months, if not years. And Amazon and Starbucks know that time is on their side. Time is not on the side of pro-union workers. So Andy Jassy, the new CEO of Amazon, has already said this is going to be a really long fight over the election result, not over anything else, but over accepting the election result where workers very clearly voted to support the Amazon labor union. And he said, you know, the NLRB is not going to rule against itself, meaning they're going to take this all the way to the courts. 
And so what that means, and you know, I apologize for going on. I'll, I'll I appreciate it. What it means is that Amazon and Starbucks can win by losing at the NLRB. I mean, simply because of their resources, because of their determination to fight to the death, because of their uh, ability to appeal and delay at every stage, even if every decision goes against them, which almost certainly it will, they can still undermine these union campaigns simply by using months and months and years of delay. And now the last of the first half program's updates. In Greece and Belgium in recent weeks, but also in other countries as I'll go through, there have been massive union-led strikes. Let me stress, unions have decided to pull their members out by the tens to hundreds of thousands. Greece in the last couple of weeks has had its second of this year general strikes in which everything stops in that country. Belgium, not a country given to this sort of thing all that often, likewise. What is it about? They are very angry in those countries about two or three things. The most important, the inflation, and their anger that the wage increases they're getting, if they get any, are systematically less than the inflation, which means if you're lucky enough and you fight hard enough to get any wage increase, maybe two, four, six percent, if you're really lucky, you're still falling behind because prices in Europe are now rising on average around 10 percent. Some countries more, some countries a little less. So the working class is being told, you're going to have less. You're going to be able to buy less goods and services because even if we give you the raise you're fighting for, we won't give you enough even to keep up with the prices that are rising. Unions are saying this violates their conditions of work and therefore they're not going to do the work. But you know, you may be surprised to hear the country where the most of this is going on. France has some, Spain has some, Germany has some. But the country where the strikes are really taking off by a coordinated labor union commitment is Great Britain. Yeah, the United Kingdom. The economy has been falling apart for a long time. The empire is gone. The queen died. The country separated from Brexit because it was told by the conservatives that if only you break away from Europe, your economic problems will be solved. That was a straight-out lie meant to deflect the attention of the British working class from their problem, which is the capitalist class and the difficulties it has worked its way into with the empire it no longer has. So what's happening? Well, since the summertime, the strike wave has begun. In the summer and in the fall, the railway workers, they took the lead. There's a long tradition of miners and railway workers being union strong and striking. But now I want to read you some of the other strikes that have been authorized in Britain by the unions. Nurses, 500,000 nurses across Britain, going on strike. The National Health Service, where many of those workers, the nurses work, but have many other kinds of workers, doctors, technicians of all kind, 350,000 voted to strike. 70,000 university teachers across Britain voted to strike. Airport workers, dock workers, by the thousands. That's right. Labor militancy, letting the government know you better do something about inflation, 
insufficiently rising wages, crunching down on the working class, we're not going to take it. And the first way we're going to show it is by our words. And the second way we're going to show it is by our actions. We're not going to work. We're not going to do what we are not adequately paid for. And of course, the next steps will be political. We'll vote you right out of office, you conservatives. We'll give a bigger surprise to the conservatives than the Democrats gave to the Republicans in the just-concluded midterm elections. But perhaps the most important point that I can make by telling you about unions and strikes and a real fight, a class struggle of the working class in Europe against the employer class that has made such a mess there. The real message is where are the unions here in the United States? Where is the AFL-CIO? Where are the leaders of the unions providing the leadership, the organization, the know-how, the experience to make and mobilize the people for social change, particularly against an inflation? That's the real question. I just wanted to sort of highlight um, a, a quote that um, was written by the brilliant journalist and my colleague Mel Buer uh, here for The Real News. Uh, Mel wrote back in July, quote, between the war in Ukraine, two plus years of a deadly pandemic, extreme weather events exacerbated by climate change, a trade war between U.S. and China and other larger than life factors, the supply chain has experienced a series of shocks that, ex that have experts sounding the alarm and businesses lamenting the seemingly unavoidable spikes in the cost of goods, which have been passed on to consumers. These system shocks have provided a ready-made culprit for delays and disruptions all along the U.S. supply chain. Missing from the equation, though, are the, real, are the rail carriers themselves, the billionaires who own them, and the overpaid CEOs who run them, who are, end quote, these are the folks who are raking in record profits as everything else is going to shit. Pardon my language. So I think we have a clear case here of a corporate class demonstrating that they are not fit to run such a vital infra, uh, uh, utility upon which our entire society and economy depends. And this is what Railroad Workers United and the proposal that they sent out for nationalizing the, ra nationalizing the rail system, I think that's why it's so powerful. And I wanted to um, toss it back to Ross to ask if you could say a little more about this proposal uh, and about like, you know, this, this, this is not some pie in the sky dream. Like this is actually a very sensible move that people should be considering uh, uh, carefully. Yeah, I appreciate that. This is uh, not something that we uh, passed, a resolution that we passed uh, lightly. We gave it a significant amount of thought. In fact, going back uh, uh, several of our biannual conventions, it's something that we've talked about for a long time. Um, I, I think, first and foremost, going into negotiations, uh, you want to go in with the strongest possible position. And I can't imagine anything more that these rail carriers would hate than to have railroad infrastructure in, in this country be publicly owned, just like it is in, in most, if not uh, the, the, the large majority of uh, industrial uh, railroad systems, freight railroad systems throughout the world. And, and in fact, it's, it's not so unfamiliar in this country when we think about public infrastructure, whether it be the interstate highway system or airports and ports. Um, these things are, are publicly owned and operated for the for the good of the the nation's supply chain, and and so uh, now is the time I think to to push this this idea more broadly, and uh, try to to introduce that in into uh, the discussion because as I'm I'm totally ended up and and looking here third quarter railroad profits alone for just four of the six class one railroads was over six billion. $6 billion uh, in the last quarter. That's three months profits um, that are, that are again, they're being extracted out of the system and they're gone. Uh, whereas if 
we had a nationalized system that we were running for the good of the supply chain, we could ensure its safety and we could reinvest the, that money to make it even better. Like Ross said, this is something that Railroad Workers United has debated and discussed for, for over a decade. And as we see the one-two punch of the precision scheduled railroading, uh, the decimation of the workforce, uh, shipper complaints at an all-time high, practically every shipping group in the country from trash and recycling to coal, uh, ferrous metals, to chemicals are all complaining. And this dates back before the pandemic uh, with the the level of service. There's so many reasons right now that American people should be thinking about putting the rail infrastructure of this country into public ownership. And as Ross said, this is throughout the world, uh, something that is routine. And in our own country, the inland waterways, the airports, seaports, interstate highways, local and city, county uh, roads are all owned uh, publicly. And so this is not a radical idea, even though we may be baited as being radical. Uh, I guess that's a question of um, degree and everything's relative. But if you look at the rest of the world's transportation infrastructure and even our own country's transportation infrastructure, uh, this is hardly a radical idea. So in addition to the low level of service, in addition to the railroad system in this country failing on almost every single metric, whether it's car dwell time in yards, whether it's average freight train speed, uh, customer satisfaction, there's only one metric that seems to matter and that is operating ratio and stock price and dividends and profits. And so on that, as Ross said, uh, third quarter record profits being announced. It, it's just bold face it in the middle that they of a, of a contract dispute that might bring the nation to a halt where they cannot provide us with a, a few days of sick time, but yet they are capable of making exorbitant profits uh, year over year. But a few other things to mention in case people aren't aware. The rail system in this country is moving less freight than it did 16 years ago. And this is really crucial because other means of, of, of freight transport are, are booming. The economy has grown enormously since 2006. So the freight is moving, but it's not moving by rail. And this is tragic because rail is the most efficient means the safest means of transportation known to humanity. Um, and so why is the rail industry moving less freight? Well, because they can jack up prices and they have a different model of how to make their industry profitable. Most industries uh, that aren't monopolies simply have to go out, beat the bushes and, and, and get more business. Not the US freight industry, it simply cuts costs, introduces new technology, doubles up the work on the existing workforce, contracts out work to non-union sector, uh, eliminates tens of thousands of jobs, uh, and then basically jacks around their, 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 their customers, uh, treats them like crap, uh, and, and jacks up the prices. So as Ross said, this has other knock-on effects. I work for Amtrak currently. Amtrak is in an all-time low situation in terms of being able to run its trains on time. As most folks know, Amtrak runs on the private rail system in this country uh, for about 90% of its route mileage and is beholden and subject to the terms of their, quote, host railroad. Well, the host railroads aren't very good. Uh, and we have trains that are chronically one, two, three, five, ten hours late, held up by long freight trains. PSR, one of the hallmarks of precision scheduled railroading is very, very long trains and they don't fit in the sidings and they break down and they are slow and cumbersome and so forth. And so not only is the existing rail system not moving the handful of Amtrak trains on time, it is vehemently opposed to the introduction of new Amtrak trains and new frequencies and new routes. And there's a big conflict right now down in the Gulf where Amtrak would like to do a test run 
uh, and restore a route that was eliminated after Hurricane Katrina and just bring back two little trains from Mobile to New Orleans. And CSX and Norfolk Southern are vehemently, vehemently opposed, even though they're only running 10 trains a day on that route, they insist that any Amtrak trains is just not doable and that's a huge amount of public subsidy uh, is granted to them. So one more thing on the nationalization question. I know a lot of railroaders out there might feel like, you know, this is a radical notion and that private enterprise is the way to go. Well, a hundred years ago, the railroad system in this country was actually nationalized for a brief period for about two years during World War One. The railroad workers and their unions at that time voted overwhelmingly, like 98% in a plebiscite of all rank-and-file railroad workers to keep the railroads under national control with maximum worker participation in running those railroads. And it was what was known as the Plum Plan, and I highly advise folks who are interested to check that out. And so here we are today where this once again seems maybe off the charts, radical, uh, but as we've already talked about, it's not radical at all. It's common sense and it's a way to move the nation's freight and passengers going forward in the 21st century rather than having just a handful of corporations make self-serving decisions that is not serving shippers, passengers, workers, communities, the economy or the nation. So I think it's time that we really give some thought to uh, taking the railroads under public ownership. We've just heard clips today, starting with Bad Faith laying out some railroad history and the plans to fully automate the future. The Brian Lehrer Show discussed an Amazon unionization campaign and the importance of strikes. Citations Needed highlighted the absurdity of putting all the moral responsibility of the impact of strikes on the worker, but never the management. Bad Faith looked deeper at how the Democrats have not been supporting the labor movement as much as their rhetoric would make you think. Counterspin discussed labor struggles with Amazon and Starbucks and the defensive strategies the companies have been employing. Richard Wolff on Economic Update looked to labor fights going on in Europe and the UK and how they compare and contrast with the US. And The Real News made the case for nationalizing our freight rail system. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from The Real News diving a bit deeper into the history of railroad strikes and the inflammatory anti-labor attitudes of management. Remarks that were made by the carrier's representatives saying that labor and the workers don't contribute to their profits. Their profits are the result of of investment and risk. And since we don't share in the downside risk, uh, we shouldn't shouldn't be uh, expected to share in the upside risk either. We've seen the lives lost of three brothers within the last two weeks in accidents and several more injured. And they say we bear no downside risk. I, I just attended a fundraising event over the weekend for a maintenance away brother who lost both of his legs in an accident in July. And, and they say we bear no downside risk. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestfulleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And finally... As promised, it was a pure coincidence that I looked up the origin of the term hot mess recently. Etymology is just a little bit of a hobby of mine, and so pretty frequently I hear a common word or phrase that is common but a little odd, and I wonder how it came to mean what it does. And so just a few days ago, I had that thought about the term hot mess, so I looked it up. And the first origin of the phrase in general uh, actually has nothing to do with our common usage today. The word mess referred to food, as in mess hall. And so a hot mess was really just a hot meal. But things get interesting when the phrase turns from a literal description into a metaphor. And apparently the first known written example was describing the confused public who believed the lies of management 
over the complaints of the workers. So this is from the History of Hot Mess on Merriam-Webster's website. And they, they are quoting the monthly journal of the International Association of Machinists from January 1899. So that journal from 1899 says, quote, I say, if the public would only stop to consider this before forming an opinion, perhaps the wage earners might win. But no, they believe everything they see in the newspapers. If the newspaper says the sky is painted with green chalk, that is what goes. Verily, I say unto you, the public is a hot mess. Unquote. And then the article on Merriam-Webster, continues and explains that the machinists were on strike and the author felt that the public should have understood that the workers were striking for important reasons and at great personal sacrifice. Instead, they believed what the newspapers told them, which was ostensibly that the workers' complaints were overblown. Which is, of course, just a great reminder that it is important to know our history, if for no other reason than to prevent ourselves from being collectively fooled time and time again. We all know perfectly well what a horror show the Gilded Age was for labor. And with probably just a few sociopathic exceptions, we're all glad to have the labor reforms that we now enjoy. That said, history also shows that the complaints of the workers are always dismissed by management, doubted by the media, and as a result, scorned by the public. A hot mess all around indeed. As always, keep the comments coming in, and remember that our old number has learned new tricks. Our voicemail line can now also receive text messages through standard SMS, as well as working on WhatsApp or Signal, so whatever you prefer. The number to dial to leave a message or text us is 202-999-3991, or you can keep it entirely old school by simply emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering and bonus show co-hosting and thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through our patreon page or from right inside the apple podcast app membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player and continue the discussion by joining our best of the left discord community to talk about the show or the news or other shows or anything you like. The link to join is in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.